Good morning. I am very excited to be here. I don't think I need to speak a lot about more international, especially after Pastor Philip did such a good job in uh, introducing us. Actually, when I need a, a, a video or any type of communication, I'll call him, so he's unofficially the spokesman anyway, so, and I don't speak English, so. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's a, it's a pleasure, really, to be here. A little bit about uh, my family and, and our ministry. We've been involved in missions ever since I was in seminary, uh, and I graduated in 98. Uh, then I went to China as a, as a missionary. I, I was single back then, and Pastor Philip told a little bit about the experience that I had there uh, in the four years that I lived in China uh, with the persecuted church. Uh, and the Lord used that uh, experience to... Uh, bring me to a, a, a new level, I would say, of my own vocation in terms that this is all uh, we do right now. We serve the suffering church. Uh, More International as an organization uh, came to exist in uh, 2010, and I was one of the founders of the organization. We moved to the States about a little less than two years ago to establish an office of the organization here. Uh, we've been living uh, near Philadelphia, as uh, he said here, the Eagle City. Uh, and, uh, you know, but we, I am more into real football, like the soccer thing. Uh, but uh, we are moving to North Carolina in a few uh, months, or actually uh, quite soon. That will be in the end of May. So I, I pray that, oh, I ask you to pray for us, for, for this move uh, as our family is going there. And that's where the headquarters of More International is going to be, right outside Greensboro uh, in North Carolina. So please pray for this bunch of Brazilians in uh, Redneck Town or whatever. So uh, if you would uh, open your Bibles with me, Jeremiah chapter 2. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2 and the word that the Lord brought to my heart for this morning I would say is at least unusual uh, different a little bit when we talk about what's going on in the world and how we are to engage with that so Jeremiah chapter 2 uh, I will read a few specific uh, verses, so I, I ask you to follow me. I will start uh, on the first verse, and then we'll be skipping a few verses there. So, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not song. Israel was holy to the Lord, the, fruit, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate 
of it incurred guilt, disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Verse 7. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they, there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Verse 13, our last verse. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out our, uh, cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So may the Lord bless uh, this time that we are depending on him uh, as we receive the revelation from his word. Well, uh, I want to start this by talking a little bit of the reality of Brazil, and you will understand where I'm going with all that. I would say that right now, Brazil is the safest country in the world for a Christian to live, even more than the United States. Like we don't have in Brazil episodes like uh, what we had in Texas a few months ago when someone, in a, in a clear case of uh, persecution somehow, it was an isolated case, but did happen in the United States, and we had the shooting inside of Baptist Church. Uh, well, uh, Brazil is not likely that something like that will happen at this point. Actually, we have too much freedom. Uh, it is a, a dangerous place for everybody to live for other reasons, but not specifically for a Christian to live. That's what I mean. Uh, but it was not always like that. I grew up hearing stories of my grandfather especially in the countryside of Brazil, where uh, especially the Catholic, the very strong Catholic culture, would not open up very much for Protestant Christians. So there were episodes, very many, and my, my, uh, my grandfather, my grandparents suffered from that, that they would burn Bibles in the middle of the city, like the, the city square, you know, and those kind of things would be, would be done against Christians and against the church, and pastors would be kicked out of towns and, and so forth. So there was persecution once in Brazil, maybe not as severe as the ones we see now in the Middle East, as more works uh, with Christians from Pakistan, from uh, Syria, Iraq, and so forth. But there was risk. Uh, for those who wanted to be evangelical Protestant Christians in Brazil a little while ago. Now, follow this. One day I caught, I caught myself imagining a conversation of my grandfather, which I don't believe this conversation really happened, but a possible conversation of him and another man of his church back then talking about the hardships that they had to go through because of their faith and the pastor that was kicked out of town and all those things that I just 
described. And I imagine one of them saying to each other, well, maybe there will, there will be one day that we're going to have freedom in Brazil. They're going to have Christian radio stations. That would be impossible back then. They would have Christian newspapers. And now we have like whole TV channels and most of what we, you have in America will have that as well. So, uh, but that would be not even possible to think about back at their time. So if there is freedom now, someone paid the price for it. If we got to a point that now we have all the religious freedom that we talk about, uh, someone paid a price for it. And then I read this part of the scriptures that is not talking about persecution. This is pretty much an illustration of all this. And see, Jeremiah is raised by the Lord to prophesy to the people during a time that the people had been already living in the promised land for very long. And Israel is just there, sitting there, established there, living a good life there. But they just walk apart from the Lord in their everyday life. They don't have anything to do with the Lord anymore. And then the Lord raises this prophet to speak to his people. And what he speaks is really intense here. Verse number two, which is a very important one for me in this text. What the Lord is saying to the people is basically, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, meaning desert, in a land not sown. And this is a strong statement because what the Lord is basically saying to them is, I miss your desert version. I miss those times when you had to go through a lot of things because you had a pure devotion towards myself and then you made it to the promised land and it's just not good. And then I look at the Brazilian church right now and I see the reasons why we fight against each other and the, the reasons, uh, you know, all the prosperity gospel thing and all the, all the theological mess and everything there. And I, I look at this and I look back and I say, well, maybe persecution wasn't too bad. Maybe the desert was actually good for us and we took it for granted. And this reminds me of one day about uh, four or five years ago that I was in Sudan with a friend, Sudanese pastor that serves with more still today. And he is definitely one of my heroes. I don't know people that went through anything similar to what he went through because of his faith. The name of this man is Mohammed. He is the son of a sheikh, uh, which is an Islamic uh, priest. And his father is the one that started persecuting him after he got saved. And he hasn't seen his father since the year he got saved, which was 94. So he's just hated. and. He can't go any close to his original family. And one day, uh, they would, you know, beat him up pretty much every week. And, and his life was really hard in Sudan. 
and one day uh, something really bad happened, even hard to speak in public. Uh, but six radicals went to his house. Uh, they locked his kids in the bathroom. They tied him up in a pillar in the middle of the living room, and they molested his wife in front of him for him to deny faith. And that happened in 2011, and I was there a little bit after that. And this kind of Christian that never did deny faith, uh, once he said to me, you are my hero. I said, what are you talking about? I said, how can you be a Christian in a free country? And then that kind of shocked me. And he said, I wouldn't be able to. I need persecution. I wouldn't be able to love God the way I love without restrictions. I do need them. And, you know, I got so messed up and I froze with that question. But what I would have answered to him in a very honest manner would be, I, I don't even know if there are Christians in my country after you say something like that. And this is not meant for you to feel bad. Actually, I celebrate the lives of these men every day. They are my fuel to seek the Lord more and to learn from them. But this is exactly the point. Uh, the life in the promised land for the Western church became such a thing that we forgot or we took for granted the, the journey of the desert that many had to take. And I do believe that the Lord is not probably taking us back to the, to the desert. Some people say, oh, maybe we need persecution in America so that the church will wake up. I really honestly pray that the church will wake up without persecution because I work with persecution every day and you don't want that on your backyard, I'm telling you. But now, here's an issue. Maybe it's possible to have the heart of the desert even in the promised land. Maybe it's possible to have a relationship with God as intense as that one from those times when things were hard. We, we can be even talking about something other than persecution here. There are people that just to make a living, they work really, really hard and, you know, they don't have the means, but they, they just play hard, you know, and they go to, to, to school without having the conditions. And, and at those times, these people usually have a prayer life and they wake up in the middle of the morning, uh, in the middle of the night, and they pray intensely. But then they get to a point that they are hired by a big company and that promised land comes through. And why should I pray 3 o'clock in the morning right now? I made it. And then uh, our Christianity becomes a, a promised land perspective. Christianity, when we should not leave the heart of the desert behind. So this is what I'm talking about. And uh, my only question this morning, which I'm going to answer in a few minutes here with the help of the text, uh, is this, what do we learn from these desert Christians? What do we learn, what do I learn from my persecuted brothers and sisters? I could be here telling you stories uh, until tomorrow. Uh, this is our life. We, we do this full time. 
uh, Pastor Philip shared with this church the story of a Pakistani brother last week, and that's the kind of feeling that we have actually every week, and uh, we and we get emotionally and intensely involved with all this, uh, but we learn with them. They are our disciples somehow. They are, they they guide us through the path of being able to have a desert heart, even though we are in the promised land. In, uh, we don't need to feel bad for being in the promised land. Praise God for freedom. Praise God for uh, we, we, that we are able to come to church and to actually choose the church and to carry the Bible as big as you want. And uh, praise God for that. I, I'm not saying this is bad. I'm saying what is bad is that we forgot the desert attitude. And these brothers live in the desert, some of them literally, and they have lessons to teach to us, and I, I'd like to point out three of them. The first lesson I, I learned from the desert Christians that I believe that the Lord will help us to restore the desert heart in our Christianity too, uh, is related to their holiness. So holiness is going to be uh, a first word. Because we talk a lot about holiness here, uh, and in verse 7, uh, there is, when the Lord tells them, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Actually, the people did in the promised land the very thing that the Lord told them not to do. So you, you're not going to tolerate the influence of those who already inhabit that land. You're not going to marry your kids with Moabite daughters. You're not going to allow that to happen. I want to separate my people. And they, they did exactly the opposite. Years after the land was actually taken... Uh, David still has to kick out the Jebusites from the land because even though it was clearly told to the, to the people of Israel that they shouldn't uh, be in fellowship with the darkness of that idolatry, uh, that's exactly what they did. And that typifies uh, the kind of Christianity that we, we usually live or many of us live nowadays. Uh, I think when I talk about holiness here, I'm talking about uh, as opposed to secularization. The church is doing some job to try to reach out to the world, to the world, but the problem is that we're looking too much like the world to do that. And all of a sudden, we, we lose a little bit of criteria here. And see, as a missiologist, I like contextualization. I think it makes sense that the brothers planting a church in Miami, he cannot uh, wear probably the same clothes he used, he would wear in Snow Camp, North Carolina, where I'm moving to. <laughs> so, uh, Quakerland. So, uh, see, this is contextualization, but the content of the gospel is one. You don't mess with that one. It is possible to address different people with different language but talking about the same truth, which is Jesus Christ and him alone. 
But now when we negotiate content in order to be accepted by the world and we uh, try to fix what the Bible does and, and, and adjust what the Bible says in order to be accepted and admitted in certain circles, that's no longer evangelism or contextualization. That's secularization. And that's exactly what the people did when they went into the promised land. And see, persecuted Christians are persecuted because they don't do this. <laughs> persecuted Christians are persecuted because they, they stand against that. Because if you tell me about, oh, there is a movement, and there actually is, of Christians that they, they pretend they are Muslims, which are, is called the insiders. So they, they pretend they are Muslims. They go to the mosque. They bow like everybody else, but they're actually praying to Jesus. And then I would say, the first thing I would react, I would say to you, these people are not persecuted. They are avoiding persecution. That's why they, they pretend to be what they are not, if in fact they are. So the gospel is about shocking. <laughs> the gospel is about Jesus saying, I didn't come to bring exactly peace on earth. So uh, when they do anything different from that, I start questioning uh, if there is holiness involved. So these people pay a high price to keep a holy life, even though they know how much it's going to cost them. And what is the price of your holiness? I think that's a, that's a good uh, thing for us to think about. So uh, the first lesson I learned from the desert Christians, the many I know, is about their holiness, their willingness to stick to the truth, no matter how much that's going to cost them. And in some cases, that does cost their lives, their dignity in the human standards, and so much more. Second lesson I heard uh, in, about their relationship with God is that they are not only holy, but they are intimate with the Lord. I learned intimacy as opposed to superficiality. Uh, and when I look at verse 8 here, I don't think we have read that one, but it says, the priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. That, that is a very strong line. Those who handled the law of God did not know God or the God of the law. Those who teach about me do not know me. And, and actually, it's sad to notice that it is completely possible for someone to know all the information available about something without really being intimate to that object. That's completely doable. Uh, when I was a missionary in China, I had a professor friend in a university that he really liked to hang out with me because he knew everything about Brazil. He did studies on Brazil. He, he wrote about Brazil. So he wanted to know more information from a Brazilian. And I think I was the first Brazilian he ever met. And he never went to Brazil. But he knew more about Brazil than I did, information-wise. <laughs> the history of the names, of the dates, and everything. But he never 
step there. So that's unfortunately possible in terms of Christianity. It is possible to be a scholar and know everything about the Lord that is written somewhere without knowing the Lord himself. And that kind of superficiality, uh, I'm telling you, I don't see that in the suffering church in general. We're talking about people that are not educated. We're talking about pastors that they, they don't have 5% of the training that I was able to receive. However, I do not have 5% of their intimacy with God. And I, I humbly confess that. So these people are just, uh, they just know the Lord. I remember my brother Muhammad again, once I was in his house, and uh, his wife told me that she had a very long night because one of the kids... I was sick, and I said, well, didn't you take him to, is he better now? Oh, yeah, he's better. He's playing there. Uh, you can't believe how he was last night. It was such a, a big fever, you know, and he was really, really bad. I said, did you take him to the doctor? No, I didn't. Why not? It's like, we, we give you guys a salary. Is it not enough? Uh, what do you need? You, you should tell me. Uh, and she goes, Pastor, hospitals are Islamic. We cannot go in. We don't have access to that. So how do you treat him? She said, I prayed, and he got better. Oh, nice. That's where I come from. We pray after we tried everything else. So uh, that intimacy is nothing. We probably... Some of us are tempted to hear a statement like that and start asking theological questions. Is that the gift of healing for today and stuff? And uh, I mean, they don't even know that the gift of healing is an issue in the West, if you ask them. They just pray, and the kid got better. So that intimacy, the way they relate with the Lord, is something that we need to learn, and we need to rescue the desert heart in our Christianity for sure. And this is the last thing I want to share. Uh, we learn holiness from the desert Christians. We learn intimacy from the desert Christians. And we definitely learn contentment from the desert Christians. And this is so humbling to me that uh, in, a, in a culture, a Western culture of building and conquering and uh, making sure that you, you live a comfortable life and you give your kids a comfortable life, which, of course, I'm not against at all. Uh, but I just think we became insatiable. Like, it's kind of hard to fulfill what our soul actually demands in the Western perspective. Like, it's never enough. And actually, the, the Bible is talking about that here in verse 13 a little bit, which we read. Uh, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and healed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that's sometimes how we are. It's never enough. Like when, you, when you're done paying for your car, it's probably too old and you need a new one and so forth. And, and then uh, 
your house is probably not good enough, and then we, afterwards you need a downsize or upgrade or whatever, but the fact is uh, we, we get, it's like we can not get satisfied very easily. And when I see persecuted Christians and uh, the way they focus on eternal things more than on physical things, the way they relate with their material belongings as if they were prepared to run away from the place where they are at any time and leave everything behind. That's exactly how they live, many of them. When I see that, that really touches my heart. And again, I don't think it's bad to have things. I don't think we, we should be held guilty for being blessed. Again, praise God for the blessings he gives to us. However, I do think that we need to work on our contentment a little more as uh, Western Christians. Uh, I was a few years ago in a country from the old Soviet Union uh, called Uzbekistan. And that country is in this part of the world called Central Asia, which holds all these Kistan countries like Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and so forth. And persecution is a very big issue in that part of the world. Uh, actually, you have the culture of the Soviet Union and, and all that you already know, and it's kind of blended with the Islamic religion, which is big in the area now. So you see all these str strongholds for the church to deal with. Now listen to this. I visited this family, and their 16-year-old kid was in jail. 16-year-old did not have a specific jail system for uh, minors, so he just went to a regular jail. And his crime was to preach the gospel to another kid at school, which uh, I, you know, I would spend all my years teaching our kids to do the same. So he taught, he, he shared the gospel with the kid. That kid uh, actually told someone that he did that, and for that reason, the kid was arrested. I met his parents, and they were smiling at me. And I asked, how is your son? He's, they said, smiling, he's not good. They torture him with needles under his fingernails. But they were smiling. And I was touched. And the family's right there with me and the little sister that he had. And, and I'm like, so is that how you react? And the father says, he already led 138 people to Christ in jail. Yes, that's how I react. Because their treasure is a different treasure. They really believe they raise kids for a different purpose. And their contentment is just different from ours. We do need, sometimes as a, as a Western church, we want to do missions. We want to go to places to bless them. We need to understand the reciprocity of this. And we do have a lot to learn from our brothers and sisters from the desert. Uh, I know my time is, is gone, but I have a, just a question to humbly ask you. Uh, and this is it. 
how far are you from having a desert heart towards the Lord? Sometimes our Christianity is so influenced by this freedom culture that we have, and in the promised land, uh, things are just made easier, and we don't need to seek the Lord as intensely as we might have to do in the past, maybe, uh, during the desert. So my question is, how do you need the desert heart again? Because I do believe that the Lord can give you that heart again. I don't, I don't think you, not, you need to go back to the desert. I think we just need to convert our Christianity into something that indeed pleases the Lord and makes him proud of us as he sounds in the text. Like I, I miss the time that you are my young people in the wilderness and you loved me and your devotion was pure. And this is my prayer for this church as well. May God bless you. Pastor Philip will close us in, in prayer.